For those of you who may not know who I am, my name is Jackson Kramer, and I'm the director of our Cole Center for Biblical Studies, which is our in-house seminary training program. I'm thrilled to be with you this morning and have everything on straight. Uh, my wife has gone for a week and left me with the four kids. Um, so I'm just glad to be here. And, and I must admit, my greatest, uh, my greatest terror has been dealing with my eight-year-old daughter's hair. I, I just do not have the gene that it takes to get anything straight with her hair, but fortunately, if you see her this morning, her hair's fine. She spent the night with Jan Nielsen, our women's pastor, who <laughs> bailed me out, so I, I don't know. I'd still be at home trying to figure it out, probably, so I'm glad to be here. Let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can worship as we have already. Teach us, Lord, through your word. Help us to know you and walk with you more fully. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. When I was an intern in the seminary program at Peninsula Bible Church some 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Pakistan on a short-term mission. When I was there, I was trying to feel my way around and figure out how I was to relate in this very foreign culture. Well, one morning, I was feeling out of place and all. One morning, I had the opportunity to teach 60 Pakistani pastors at a devotional early in the morning. And I was uh, teaching from one of the Psalms and talking about the enemies we face as Christians. And I referred to the calls to prayer that we would be awakened by every morning at four in the morning as representative of the whole Islamic culture that for them as Christians was uh, one of the enemies they face. Well, when I said that, through my interpreter, there was a murmur amongst all these pastors, and I didn't know why. I asked them afterwards, I asked the, the interpreter afterwards, why did they respond that way? And, and he said, well, they all believe that the Islamic culture is one of our enemies and, uh, and an agent of Satan, but no one would ever state it publicly because they would be sure, there are many informers around, and they'd be sure to disappear and never be heard from again. Well, here I was in this foreign culture, and uh, I just didn't know the ground rules. I just didn't know the basic rules that I needed to get along in that country, and one of those is you don't criticize the Islamic culture when you're in it. So I spent the rest of my week there kind of looking over my shoulder. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have any problems. But... It brings to mind what it's like for us sometimes when we enter the kingdom of God. All of us are born worldlings. We're born as citizens of this world. We're under the power of the air, the, the one who reigns on this earth. Then at some point in our lives, we make a commitment to Jesus Christ, and we become members of something totally new, the body of Christ, the dwelling place of God. Some of you have walked with God for a lot of years. Some of you are brand new. Maybe some here have never even made that commitment. But when you come into the kingdom of God, when you become part of the body of Christ, there are certain fundamental ground rules that you need to live by. 
And if you don't follow those ground rules, then the body will not be healthy. We won't be the dwelling place of God that we are designed to be. In the last few weeks, we've been taught up through Ephesians 1 through 3, which really tells us all that God has done for us in bringing us into the body of Christ. Fantastic truths in how he has redeemed us, set us free, forgiven us, given us a hope, and made us part of the great mystery, Paul calls it, that we now, we, the body of Christ, are the dwelling place of God. He dwells in the world in us. He says at the end of chapter 2, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, we are the dwelling place of God, and Paul is so excited, he spends three chapters describing that. But now that we're part of this family, the question is, how do we live with one another? How do we live in this body so the body will be healthy and strong, so this temple will be a place that people will see God alive and at work? So I encourage you to listen today as we look at three great foundational priorities for the body of Christ. The rest of Ephesians, Paul will be describing the things that we need to do to live out our lives as the body of Christ. But the very foundational ones, I believe, are given in our passage today in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So if you turn there with me, I would appreciate that. And the priorities, let me remind you that in the dwelling place of Christ, what's most important, as we'll see, is our relationships. Didn't Jesus say that where he said, My commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples and how you love one another. You see, it's how we love one another, how we relate to one another, that makes the body healthy and strong and allows God to be seen in us, amongst us. And here at Cole, this church has been around for a long time, a number of years, but we're in the midst of a transition time now as David Roper is working with IMM and uh, we're in the process of looking for a new permanent senior pastor as the elders are searching and And it's a great time to be reminded of what we need to make our priorities as part of the body of Christ. So let me read, first of all, the first six verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The first priority that Paul lays out for us is that we must guard our God-given unity. Guard our God-given unity. 
He begins by saying, I encourage you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I entreat you, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What's the calling? It's the calling to be part of the body of Christ, part of his temple, part of his dwelling place. And he says, I exhort you to walk worthy of that. Walk in a manner worthy. What does that mean? What does the word worthy mean? Well, it literally means to be of equal weight. He says your calling is a very high calling. To be part of the dwelling place of God, his body. And your conduct should be equal, of equal weight to your calling. How you live should measure up to how you were called, what God has called you into. And then he says, if you skip down, he says, um, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, I think that's his primary point in these first verses, is that God has created us as the body of Christ with a God-given unity. We are one by virtue of the fact that the Spirit has placed us in this body. When you're born into your natural family, you don't get a choice about who your brothers and sisters are. You're stuck with them. (laughs) And you have to learn to get along and relate and love one another in that family. Well, it's true of the body of Christ, too. You don't get to choose your brothers and sisters in Christ. God called every one of you into the body. I didn't get to choose who he chose. He chose But I need to learn to love and relate to you in ways that are pleasing to him and that guard, protect our God-given unity. We are one because we're called into one family, he says. The word um, where he says, be diligent to preserve. The word preserve there is one of a guard, guarding a prison. Guard, and the word be diligent means to strive eagerly, put a lot of energy into it. We need to work hard to make sure that the unity that God has created us with doesn't get destroyed. I find that that in the church, this is a very difficult priority to keep. There's something about us that wants to look at differences and exalt those and raise those up and be critical of one another and divide one another rather than say we are one And we need to emphasize that oneness. If we are in Christ, we are one. You see, God can't function well through us if we're fighting all the time. I mentioned that I went on this trip to Pakistan, um, short-term trip. And we went there to, to do a conference for native pastors, as I said. But when we got there, we were on the grounds of a seminary, as I understood it at the time, the only evangelical seminary in the whole northern part of Pakistan. And we began talking to some of the faculty members there, and there were a number of faculty members, I suppose 10 or 12. And this seminary only had eight students. They had had a number of students, I think close to 100 not too long before. They were down to eight students, and as we began asking questions, we realized the president of that seminary and one of the faculty were fighting. They would not talk to each other. They were divisive. And they'd gathered their little groups and were critical of one another. And we found, the pastors that I was with and myself, 
that our main job there was to begin to bring healing in their relationship so the church could be healthy. You see, when you have criticism and division among the body like that, it's like a cancer cell within your body that begins attacking itself, begins destroying your body. And what happens to the physical body when there's cancer cells? It's destroyed. But the same is true of our spiritual body, the body of Christ, when we begin attacking one another and fighting one another and destroying the unity that God has created us with. In the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, it was the time of the Crusades. And you've heard about the Crusades where the knights from England and France and Germany banded together and decided they were going to go rescue the Holy Land from the infidels. Well, I was reading recently about this and reading about how as they came through and marched through different countries, they came through Turkey, and there were many Christians, Turkish Christians in that area. But as they marched through, these Christians would march out and oftentimes even be holding a cross in front of them. But the Crusaders didn't stop to talk to them. All they saw were these people that looked very different coming out to meet them. And so they attacked them and slaughtered thousands of fellow Christians in Turkey and other places. Now, that's a horrible tragedy. But I wonder sometimes if if what we do isn't as bad. When we tear one another down, when we slaughter one another with criticism, with gossip, with slander. You see, God, for some reason, considers this to be so important, he puts it first. Guard the unity. Guard your God-given unity. Let nothing come between you and your fellow believer. How do we do that? He lists a number of things here. He says in verse 2, do this with all humility. The word humility is a term in their culture that was reserved only for slaves. Only the very lowest of the low were called humble. They were the ones that everyone else The ones in that Greek culture who were exalted and self-righteous and they were the ones who had all the money and power, they they looked down on the slaves and they called them humble. Well, Paul picks up that very term and says that's how we are to be with one another, to have a humility in how we relate to one another, to not put ourselves above others, but to be willing to place ourselves under others for their good, for their sake. That's the idea of humility, not to exalt yourself, but to seek to exalt those around you. The next term he uses is gentleness. This is a term that's often translated meek. And I like this word meek. The word meek does not mean weak. (laughs) In fact, to be meek, it takes great strength. Meekness, gentleness, is essentially having the strength of character to not have to demand your own way. To not have to say, I think it should go this way and I'm going to force my program no matter what. That's not meekness. Meekness is a willingness to defer for the sake of relationship. To not demand that your way win, that you win, but but to have a willingness to listen. To have a softness, a gentleness in how you relate to one another. He says that will help preserve the unity. Then he says patience. Patience means not giving up on others. Just because they don't see your, see it from your way, 
just because they don't follow your particular line of thinking, just because maybe they didn't do it right, maybe they sinned against you, maybe they failed. Patience means being able to say, Lord, they're in your hands, and I trust that you and your timing will work. Therefore, I don't have to pressure them to be what I want them to be. I can have patience, Lord, and wait upon you to work. See, these qualities are incredibly important if we are to love one another and preserve the unity that God has created us with. Finally, he says, showing forbearance to one another in love. I like this. You see, the word uh, forbearance really means put up with. (laughs) Put up with one another, he says, in love. Not just, yeah, she's that way, and I'm just going to, I'll survive it, but I don't have to like it. No, it's forbearing in love. It's putting up with one another and saying, yeah, I see your faults, but I'm going to stick with you. I am for you because I am one with you in Christ. Therefore, I will forbear with you. You see, all these words assume that people around you in the body of Christ are going to be difficult to get along with. (laughs) God knows that the people you're sitting next to and around you are irregular people in some way. And that it will be difficult for you to really love them, to forbear with them, to get along with them well. But you know, it's amazing to me, I do a lot of marital counseling. Even the people we choose to be in relationship with, we can't get along with very well. So it's going to be even more difficult with the people that God chose to put all around us in our lives in the body of Christ isn't it? But we're called to. And I'm amazed as I look at my life and I think about the people that have become my closest friends in the body of Christ. If I had at some point had the opportunity to see them all lined up, a whole group of people, and read their resumes and see what their lives were like, and then choose the people I would have for friends, I wouldn't have chosen the people that God has given me. And yet they become my dearest friends because we've learned to work through our differences and learned to be committed to one another and learned to preserve the unity that God has built into the body of Christ so we can learn to love one another. Sometimes those irregularities are what really help us grow and help us learn to love in a way that is not superficial but is really important and valuable. God thinks this is so important that he saves some of his strongest condemnations for people who break up the unity of the body. Let me just read one of those from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. He says, reject a factious man, factious, one who creates divisions. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So God says, first of all, preserve the unity. And what is our unity? He tells us here in verses 4 through 6, by describing the very foundations that make us one. And these, he mentions seven things, and all of these are grouped around the Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord, Jesus, and God, our Father. And this is what he says they are. 
First he says, uh, there's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope. You see, the spirit is the one who comes to indwell us and make us part of the body of Christ. And that makes us part of one body, what we call the universal church. Cole Community Church is a local body, but from God's point of view, we are one with every believer in Boise, in Idaho, in the United States, and in the world. We are all part of one body, he says. There is only one body, and we are one with every person in it. By the, by the work of the Spirit. So that's what makes us one. If that person has the Spirit in them, then we are one. You're part of the same family. You're part of the same body. Then he says, the next triad, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. One person that we serve. If that person is seeking to serve Jesus Christ as their Lord, then you're one with them. And it's one, we have one faith, he says. It's our faith in Jesus Christ that brings us into the body that allows us to be one. And then he says one baptism. I think he's describing, he's talking, he uses water baptism here just as a symbol of being placed into the body of Christ. There's one way that you get placed into Christ. That's by putting your faith in Christ. And baptism is just a symbol of that. But notice as he refers to that, he doesn't say the mode of baptism. He doesn't say you have to be sprinkled to be one with that person or you have to be dunked or you have to do it at a certain time or a certain place or in a river or in a dunk tank or anything else. He says if they're placed in the body of Christ, however they're placed, you are one with them. Then he ends this by saying, and ultimately, there's one father. You see, we're all part of the same family. We've all been adopted in. And you are one with anyone who knows Jesus Christ, and who has God as their Father. These are the basics that bond us together. When I was in Pakistan, as I said, on the seminary, there was this division and problems going on. I was walking across the grounds one day, and these two children came up to me and said, they couldn't really talk English, but they just called for me to come and motioned for me to follow them, so I followed them. And I went into this little mud house, a one-room house, where there was a father and his, uh, and his wife and seven children in one-room mud house. And this man knew some English, so we began talking and uh, developed a friendship there that continued for over ten years. We wrote back and forth. He uh, sent his daughter out to buy some little uh, cookies that I know must have cost a month's salary for him. But he just wanted to show me honor as a fellow believer. And we shared our lives in Christ there in that little place. And I felt one with him and still do. You see, you can be one with people no matter what their culture or the difference if you're one in Christ. Dr. Larry Crabb, who I uh, spent some time training under, I remember one of the things that he said that really struck me. He said, the older I get the less I cling to as non-negotiable in my Christian faith. The less I'm dogmatic about. He said, the older I get, you see, there's just a few basics that I really hang on to. It's a sign of immaturity when we fight about eschatology and we fight about what you ought to believe about this and that and all these different doctrines that tend to divide us. 
It's a sign of maturity in the body when we guard our God-given unity and just cling to the basics that bond us together in the body of Christ. So God says, first of all, first of all, guard the unity of the Spirit that he has given you. The second priority he gives us in the body of Christ is to use your God-given gifts to minister to one another. Let's read about that in verses 7 through 13. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says... First of all, each one of us have been given gifts. To each one of us, grace was given according to Christ's gift. Each of you in the body of Christ have been given special gifts that you are to use to serve one another. Now, this is a foundational principle of the body of Christ that has gotten lost in our modern church. Churches today tend to be spectator churches. We tend to be churches where people come to be entertained, to watch someone else do the ministry, and then we go home and do our own thing all week, and and then we come back to watch some more. You see, that is not how God designed the body of Christ to work at all. Listen to what he says here. He says, to each one of us, gifts have been given. And he wants us to know that in verse 8 to 10, he describes this, quote, Psalm 68, and he describes Jesus descending and ascending, and there's differences of opinion about what exactly he means here. I think he probably means when Jesus came to earth from heaven, walked on earth, died for us, and then rose again, he ascended. But however you take it, his point is, our gifts are powerful. They are empowered by the risen Christ. They're not just weak gifts, but they're powered by the risen Christ. People who serve coffee in between services, when they're using their gift in dependence upon Christ, what they do is empowered by the risen Christ. And it's used of God to build up the whole body. Isn't that amazing? You see, anything you do to serve one another and love one another using your God-given gifts, it's empowered by Christ for the good of the whole body to build it up. Do you realize what he says as he goes on, verse 11... He says, find the right chapter, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. He says, there are gifted people given to the body, some apostles. The apostles were the ones who gave us the word, wrote it down, founded the church. The prophets were the ones before the word really was solidified, brought revelations from God about what God's will was. But we don't have a lot of prophets today, I don't believe, because we have the word in hand. Uh, the evangelists are the ones who add to the body. Some of you are gifted evangelists out there. 
that share Christ and encourage other people to share Christ. There were evangelists involved with this Jesus video, which is a wonderful thing that bring people into the body of Christ. But then God also gives pastors and teachers... Again, there's some debate here among scholars about what is this one man, a pastor-teacher with one gift, or is it groups of men, pastors and teachers in the Greek, they're joined together somehow. I think they're probably people in the body of coal that are pastors and others that are teachers and some that have the gift of pastor-teacher. But he says those are all given to the body for what? To do the ministry? No. I'm a pastor-teacher, but I'm not here to do the ministry. Read carefully verse 12. Pastor-teachers exist for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, in my translation, but the word is ministry. You see, it's you that do the ministry at Cole, not the pastor's. And in fact, we have a pastoral staff of 13 right now. I believe there's probably uh, five times, I'm guessing, but five times that many pastor-teachers at Cole. Paid staff doesn't make you a pastor-teacher. There are gifted people among you who have been equipping you for the ministry. They might be growth group leaders. They might be a friend who shares the word with you and teaches you and encourages you. There are a lot of pastors and teachers at Cole that are used to equip the body to do the ministry. But the ministry is done by you, not by us. That's why sometimes, and you may be uh, discouraged at this, or you may wonder why this happens, but that's why if, if you may call and you know somebody's in the hospital or you know there's a particular need, and you may call one of us as one of the pastors, pastoral staff, paid pastoral staff, and you'll say, well, so-and-so needs visitation or so-and-so needs this, and we may tell you, great, Why don't you go do it? And that may feel to you like, well, we pay you to do your job. Why aren't you doing your job? Well, if I do that, if you call me, I am robbing you of your chance to minister, and I am robbing the body of Christ of its chance to grow. It's not my job to do the ministry. It's my job to equip you to do the ministry. And as you begin to step out to use your God-given gifts, the body becomes healthy and strong, what it was meant to be all along. Pastors are, and pastor teachers are the mouths of the body. Can you imagine a body with nothing but a great big mouth? Well, that's the way most churches tend to function. We have a lot of mouths, but very little hands and feet and legs and joints and all those things that make a body strong and healthy. So let me encourage you just to have that in perspective that what the body of Christ is all about is you do the ministry. I'm here to teach you, to encourage you, to equip you to do that. But you do the ministry. The word here, I really, uh, I like this word, equip. The the Greek word behind that, uh, equip, it can be a bit deceiving. It's a word that's used in Matthew 4, for example, of James and John mending their nets. You see, pastors are here to restore you, to equip you. You go out all week and do battle and serve the Lord and work and in your families and all. And I'm here to, to restore you, to mend the nets, to tie up the loose ends, to help you gain perspective again, to throw out the, the crabs and the other things in the net that have messed it up, to, 
to, uh, to help you be restored so you can be useful to God as you go out again. I was talking to one of the pastoral staff this week, and we were talking about this, and he said, yeah, but you know, I get so tired sometimes of mending the nets because it's such a messy, smelly job sometimes. <laughs> That's true. It's hard work. But what would be really foolish is if I gave it up to do the ministry. Again, I would be robbing you of your opportunity to be a minister for Christ right where you are. So it says then in verse 13 what the goal of all this using your gifts is. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says before, he said before, there's a unity that must be preserved. It's a God-given unity. But now he says what we're seeking to attain is a unity that is even greater. The unity, he says, of the faith. Where we put our faith in him, we're growing in our faith, and we're growing, he says, in the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words... As you use your gifts, and I equip you, and you use the talents God's given you to love one another and serve one another and minister, then the whole body grows together to become more and more mature as we get to know Him better and better through our service. As we learn to put our faith in Him and really trust Him more and more with our lives, the whole body grows and becomes more and more mature. See, it's a wonderful process, and it can only happen... As you reach out to use your gifts, to serve, to work through the relationships that God has given you, around you, to preserve the unity, and then to have a unity that grows as you learn to really care about one another more fully. That takes work. It takes effort to have good relationships with one another, doesn't it? It's one thing to kind of put up with one another in love. It's another to have a kind of unity where you really care about one another and love each other. And he says, that's what we need to strive for. We're given unity, but let's strive for a deeper, deeper unity. Now, I realize that depends partly on the other person, whether they want to uh, work at the relationship as well. But so far as it depends on you, Paul writes in Romans, be at peace with all men. I have a relationship from some 10 years ago that uh, it grieves me that we ever have had a division. And I am still working at this relationship, writing letters, praying, doing what I can to try to bring about a unity. And it, like I say, it grieves me that it's not all that I feel like God wants it to be yet. But we need to work at it. We need to keep striving to have the kind of relationships that provide the unity that God wants us to have. And it will come out of using your gifts to love one another. So, first priority is guard your God-given unity. Second, use your gifts to create more unity, a closer unity as you love one another and care for one another. And then thirdly, verses 14 through 16, Paul says the third priority is to work to strengthen your relationships through truth and love. You need to have unity Let me describe how you go about creating more unity, strengthening your relationships through truth and love. Let me read that. 
14 through 16. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What is Paul saying in this long run-on sentence? Um, Essentially, he's saying, work at your relationships, help them to grow, make them strong. In verse 16, he uses this analogy of joints. When you consider the analogy of the part of the body, and he talks about joints and ligaments, what is a joint? in the body of Christ. It's our relationships with one another. One part of the body joined to the other. I'm one part, you're another part. And this is the joint where we're bonded together. And he said it's through the joints that the body grows and becomes strong. It's our relationships with one another that take the work to help us be strong and be what we need to be. If any of your relationships is really out of joint... To that extent, the body won't be strong. You see, the body's only as strong as its weakest joint, right? You can be in perfect health everywhere else, but if you've blown out your knee, you're not very healthy. Or if you have just one little problem between two little vertebrae in your back, how are you going to do? You see, the body's only as strong as its weakest joint, weakest relationship with one another. God's put you in relationship with people all around you that are difficult to get along with. I don't deny that. But it's important that your joints be strong. And they don't get strong without work. A year and a half ago, Christmas time, I decided I was going to get my kids a ping pong table for Christmas. We'd gotten some money from Grandma, so I decided I would surprise them. I had a little time slot, just a window of time that I was going to go pick this up. So I took our van and went down there. Well, what I didn't realize is how big these things are and how heavy they are. But uh, I only had a little bit of time, so I took that and shoved it in the back of our van. Well, it didn't quite fit. That was one problem. Uh, in fact, I have the, the scars on the inside of our van to show where it didn't fit very well. But it was also way too heavy for me. And it was a, just a little while later, I started noticing some problems in my shoulder. And ever since then, I've had a, a very sore shoulder. And I thought, well, if I just kind of take it easy and lay off it, eventually it'll get better. Sometimes that God works that way and he can, our body can heal itself in some ways. Well, it hasn't happened. See, my shoulder is still very sore because, at least in this case, it was not going to get better through neglect. Your relationships with one another will not be stronger, will not grow. The body will not grow just through neglect with one another. You can't have strong relationships with everybody in the body of Christ, but the ones that God has placed in your life, in your family, those who you rub shoulders with, you need to work at the relationship to learn to love one another, care for one another, so the body can be strong. How do we do that? 
he uses these words, speaking the truth in love. The word speaking the truth, it's one Greek word, uh, really has a broader meaning than just your words. It means living out the truth. Everything you do should be in truth. So what he says here is that we need to truth, live out the truth, not relate to one another in phoniness, in pretending, putting on masks. There should be a real honesty in our relationships with one another. But not an honesty that bludgeons other people. An honesty, he says, that is surrounded by love, truthing in love. If the honesty is here, it should be surrounded by love. Let me read you a quote by Robert Murray McShane, who is a, uh, if I can find it here, who is a great Scottish uh, pastor. He says, Truth without love lacks its proper environment and loses its persuasive power. Love without truth forfeits its identity, degenerating into maudlin sentiment without solidity, feeling without principle. I love the book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and many of you have read it, I'm sure, by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey, where Dr. Brand, a medical doctor, draws the analogy between our physical body and the body of Christ. And he describes truth as our skeletal system that provides our frame, the hardness, the solidity that allows us to move and be strong. But if you don't have skin on it, you see, our skeletal system can do a lot of damage and really can't move very well anyway. But he draws the analogy of our skin being like love. It's soft. It's tender. It allows us to feel and get and touch others with love and care. Sensitive. Protective. That's the love that we are to relate to with one another. But you need both. The physical body without any skeletal system would be a blob laying on the floor. But a skeletal system without skin would be hard and couldn't move. We need both, truth and love. We need to keep a balance and work at having truth and love in our relationships so that we can be growing into the body of Christ, into what he wants us to be. God has put you into a new family the body of Christ. He says, preserve the unity, seek greater unity as you serve one another and use your gifts to care for one another and keep your relationships strong. Work at loving one another. That's the hardest thing for me because, you know what? Joints are messy. I have an orthopedic uh, specialist uh, who's a good friend of mine and as he describes what's inside a joint... The ligaments, the tendons, the vessels, the nerve endings, everything that's there to reconstruct a joint. It's, it's amazing, the complexity. Relationships with one another are complex. There's a lot there, and it's messy, and it's difficult. I know. But God's called you to enter that mess and to work at learning to love one another, to bring the truth, and to bring the love in at with one another so that the body can grow and be all that it's meant to be. God's glorious plan is that he might dwell in us, in you and in me, in the body of Christ. Let's not sabotage it, but let's play like by the ground rules he's laid out. 
that we might be the body of Christ that would be strong and reveal him in a difficult world. I like the analogy of an orchestra. We have the orchestra play sometimes. There's a lot of diversity there, (laughs) a lot of different sounding instruments. But it amazes me when they're working in harmony, the beautiful sound that echoes out. God wants us, the body of Christ, to have a harmony that echoes out to the world and that reveals him. I don't know how God may have touched your heart this morning. There may be a relationship that you're realizing, I need to go to this person. I would hope there would be a lot of lunches, breakfasts, times of coffee this week, to begin to bring some healing into relationships. Or maybe God's laid on you that you've been sitting back and letting the pastoral staff or others do the ministry. I encourage you to pray and ask God how he would have you do the ministry at Cole in your own little niche, in your own little way. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be studying more about the spiritual gifts that God has given, and I hope that can be an encouragement to all of us to use our gifts to serve one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how you have called us into your body. May we love one another in a deeper way. May we preserve the unity you've given us. May we learn what it means to to be truthing in love, to live out the truth in love. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.